<clears throat> so this is our, no big news here, but this is our last evening together in silence, practicing. Um, as the Buddha said, all things change, and even the bulletin board <laughs> seems more exciting these days. <laughs> Lots of colors and information and all sorts of stuff, <clears throat> insights and future planning and Not just the same old, same old. So, you know, this morning we, I talked about opening, opening the field of mindfulness practice, you know, loving, cultivating loving awareness to, um, you know, a a full range of our experiences. And and that is the direction this practice goes. We often start uh, with working with an anchor, quite diligently for a couple of days to try to get things centered and grounded and try to you know, settle things down, uh, get a sense of mindfulness as a, a resource instead of just thinking, seeing you know, that there's a difference between feeling the sensations and being aware than thinking about the sensations. So that's how we begin to get a sense of feeling the breathing as it's arising and passing away rather than thinking about the breathing you know, or, or describing it even, okay, which is thought. Mindfulness lets us touch that direct experience. In uh, what we have started doing, some of you may be staying and working with the anchor exclusively all day, and that's incredibly valid, valuable because only two days of working with an anchor is a very short period of time. I've spent, I've spent weeks and weeks and weeks just working with that anchor practice um, before I open the field of mindfulness up. Um, the Buddha taught you know, very significant discourse, the four foundations of mindfulness. And first foundation is the body, mindfulness of the body. You know, there are forms of presence. There's ways that we nurture and connect with the present moment. So body has obviously been one of the emphasis. Uh, two, uh, second foundation is feelings. And feelings isn't the emotions, that's the third. Feelings is the quality, the tone of, the, of an experience. And it's in Buddha said basically there's three tones: there's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So every sensation we have, whether it's in the body, uh, taste, sound, uh, sights, thoughts, they all have a feeling quality to them. And so being mindful of the feeling quality is being mindful of the second foundation. Third foundation is states of mind, which emotions are, are going to fall into. Collect thoughts. And the fourth foundation is really the foundation of wisdom, of seeing how things work, the laws of experience. Uh, Often it's described as the wisdom foundation, where we begin to see the law of impermanence, when we begin to notice the changing nature of the experiences that we're paying attention to. That's the fourth foundation. So tonight I'd like to talk primarily about mindfulness of the third foundation, of in particularly focusing on like strong emotions, difficult emotions, and kind of how to uh, apply uh, the practice, this practice of loving awareness that we've been talking about. And um, such an important, you know, significant aspect of our life. Uh, emotions are obviously a big part of our lives, and um, yet they can cause us a lot of problems, right? Um, 
but very few people, I think, would aspire to being unemotional. I've met a few, but they're generally not that happy. Um, so, you know, we see emotions as a, you know, a healthy part of being a human being. Uh, yet, how we relate to the emotions that arise in our life determines a lot in terms of how much we suffer, you know, what our life looks like, the decisions, the choices we make, the kinds of relationships that we cultivate, you know, the kinds of problems that we run into. A lot of it is conditioned by not only our emotions, but how we hold them, how we relate to them. And that goes really to the core of the teaching, which is often we experience things in a conditioned way. We're not always calling the shots. And I'm sure you've seen that with yourself. You know, you sit down with that intention, you know, to be mindful of the breathing or to be mindful of a sound or whatever. And then you see that something else comes up or the mind goes wandering. And, you know, we see that there's a certain kind of uncontrolled nature of our experience. Where practice comes in is where we can empower ourselves significantly. Um, and this really is the path to freedom, is developing greater awareness of how we're relating to things. And cultivating a relationship that's quite different than what we're used to. You know, oftentimes we relate to emotions through habit. You know, we've accumulated a certain, uh, we've accumulated preconceptions and judgments, all sorts of ideas about particular emotions, you know, depending on our family, the culture, our education. And that's how we hold our emotional life when, it, when our emotions arise. So the question I want to ask tonight and explore is what makes a difficult emotion difficult? Look at that. Okay. So most of us could sort of say thing, energies like anxiety or fear or anger or grief or sadness. You know, we're all a little bit different in terms of how difficult they are for sure. But, but one of those characteristics in these emotions is that they're often painful. Right? They're not necessarily pleasant experiences. Um, but even pleasant uh, emotions, pleasure, can cause trouble for us. It's not always just the painful because of how we relate to it. Take joy, for instance. Um, very common experience for meditators, um, you know, after having done retreats or a longer retreat, or you may have experienced some of this, this retreat, don't worry if you haven't, if you continue practice, you will, um, is that experience of joy. You know, there's a, the joy is often a fruit of the mind getting calm. And oftentimes they, they talk about jhanas and experiences where the mind gets very concentrated and there's very high states of joy or bliss, but also just even uh, just out of just this kind of a steady effort and practice the mind can just get quiet enough to begin to like feel joy bubbling up a little bit in one's practice, um, and that's a, you know, it's a, it's a what we call wholesome, but it's a supportive quality of mind, joy. But that, but what often has happened to folks, and this is really common, most meditators go through this, is we get attached to that joy when it arises. You know, it's very pleasant. Sometimes physically, but emotionally, mentally, it's very pleasant, and we attach to it. And that's when we get into trouble. Because inevitably, it changes. Okay? Inevitably, it changes. 
And when it does, and when it goes away, we can spend a lot of time trying to get back there. And of course, out of that process of clinging to it and trying to get back to it, there's a lot of suffering involved in that. And I've spent too long, too many years in my early years, trying to chase after certain experiences that I had at the, on the cushion earlier on and then trying to duplicate them or, or you know, get them even better and all of that kind of stuff. And it, it creates a lot of um, tension and it can generate a lot of feelings of discouragement. We think we're doing something wrong because we're not able to get back to that one experience and we're clinging to it. Instead of understanding that it's about letting go and moving back into the present, and trusting that process of loving awareness and seeing what will come out of it. Because frankly, what often comes out of it is a, a deeper, deeper understanding, but a deeper, also a deeper experience of joy. Just in everyday life, we can see sometimes how joy can create trouble for us. Um, you know, if you've ever kind of fallen in love or, you know, sort of got very infatuated with someone and all you're seeing is the really great stuff, you know, and they can't make mistakes or, you know, their flaws or perfection or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, there's a sense of joy in the relationship and it feels energetic and dynamic. And, of course, if the relationship continues, um, you know, it changes also and it goes into another phase. And we can see sometimes that when we attach to that particular phase, right, that's, that usually bodes trouble. Right? Because we're not relating to the present moment. We're clinging to the past. We're clinging to an experience that inherently was going to change. So that's one way we can create, that we create suffering, um, even out of pleasant experiences. It's not just painful experiences that generate. It's not just painful emotions that can create suffering. But generally, a lot of times, it really is a painful experience, some of these emotions. So how we hold them, you know, our attitude, our preconceptions, you know, the expectations that we have, you know, oftentimes uh, run into meditators who might be dealing with, you know, certain habitual emotions like um, anxiety, for instance, or, or fear. And, um, you know, they've been meditating for a while and they really feel like they should be done with that. <laughs> worry mind or expect, you know, worry mind or whatever it is and the expectation that that should be going. You know, I've been, I've been on two, three month courses, three, three month courses and I'm still feeling worried. You know, I still feel anxious over the smallest things. How come? And, uh, you know, again, out of clinging to an expectation, what it does do, it disempowers us disempowers us. It doesn't allow us to deal with what is. And when we're not able to deal with what is, we get into trouble. We get into trouble. I think there was a little bit of confusion. A couple people kind of brought it up um, in the groups, or I got notes, about this notion of expectations. Okay. And clearly what I'm saying is that if we cling to expectations, it causes trouble, right? We're pretty clear about that. And so a couple of people say, well, I keep trying not to have my expectations. 
but it, it's creating problems for me because I still have those expectations. And I don't know if you can see this, but there's an expectation to let go of the expectation. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 really, you know, that, that is actually what's going on. So it's not a question of getting rid of your expectation. It's not a question of striving to let go of your expectations. It's a question of recognizing what the expectations are, to see expectations and to be aware of what we're doing. How does it feel to have that expectation? What's coming out of clinging to that expectation? Reading the signals, the signs. And oftentimes, the signs are very apparent. If we're feeling discouraged, you know, if we're feeling despair, say about our practice, if we're feeling a lot of self-doubt about whether we can do the practice, those are states of mind that reflect an expectation that something else should be happening. And it's the expectation that's causing the suffering. It's the expectation that's generating the discouragement. Because if we actually relate to what's triggering that, you know, like we're not experiencing, if we just relate to the present moment and what was happening, it is what was happening, and it's going to change. But it's this feeling that it shouldn't be happening, you know, or it should be happening. Like I shouldn't be experiencing the anxiety, or I should be experiencing more joy and more concentration. And that should, that driving expectation, you know, that things ought to be what they're not. I'm just talking about in terms of simply through the process of observing, right? Because I'm not saying that the world shouldn't be a better place or, or that we shouldn't try to make change. So we, we, we might talk a little bit about that tomorrow at the closing. I'm talking about simply recognizing what you're experiencing and getting in touch with the reality, the authentic experience that you're having. And that's what this practice is. And it's learning how to get in touch and meet that experience in a very different way, not in such a habitual way. As I said, what happens is we learn to relate to these emotions in different ways. You know, and what we learn often is that these painful emotions are unacceptable. Okay, not only are we stuck with the painful emotion, but we're also stuck with the fact that it's an unacceptable experience to have. Like a good example of that was, I um, hope I didn't tell this story in the first talk. Um, <laughs> um, I think I told this a couple weeks ago. That's why. Anyway, when I was a child, like about, I don't know, maybe six or seven, um, I shared a room with my older brother. You know, we had four, four boys in this family at that, at that time. There were more that came later. Um, but four boys, and we weren't, you know, we weren't that, we weren't that well off. And so we, we didn't have my own room until I think I left high school or something. Um, but, you know, we shared a room, and we had twin beds. And I was afraid of the dark. Okay, I was afraid of the dark. So there was a hallway outside of our bedroom, and, and the hallway, we always kept the hallway like a low light, you know, because people would be going to bed at different times and things like that, so the hallway light would be on. And so I wanted the door open to let the light in, a little bit anyway, so that I could kind of relax and go back, go to sleep. My brother Jack wanted the room to be dark, naturally. He wanted to sleep in a dark room. So how do I relate to that? 
okay, I have this fear of dark, right? Now, would I talk to my brother about it and tell him, you know, I'm really afraid of the dark, Jack, and uh, can we keep the door open? Uh, no. <laughs> Flat out. That wasn't in my family. That wasn't in the culture that I grew up in. Uh, no, you keep those kinds of things, you know, you keep those kinds of things to yourself. Um, and so the strategy I evolved was I would stay awake as much as, as long as I could, humanly possible, until he fell asleep, until I actually heard him dead asleep, and then I would creep up, open the door, go back to my bed, <laughs> gone. Okay? So what, kind, of, kind of what was that strategy about? Well, that strategy was because I had a fear. You know, somewhere along the line, I accumulate. We accumulate this, right? I accumulated the fear, manifested as fear of darkness, and there was a lot of shame about it. Okay? It wasn't something that I could share or talk about or work out or ask for help or negotiate or you know, work in any kind of skillful way. And of course, a lot of that, both the fear in many ways was unconscious, kind of like it was semi-conscious, but the shame certainly wasn't conscious. Right? There was no real awareness of what I was experiencing. And so the, 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 the reason I share that is because what happens is that we take that way, that habit of relating to our fears, and we take it along with us into life as we get older. And so what did, we, what did I learn? I learned when you're afraid, you hide it because there's shame around that. And so it could be other experiences that I might have had fear about. And then my strategy, of course, was not so much to share because that wasn't the conditioning. Okay, So that's oftentimes how it works, uh, is that we accumulate uh, some conditioning like fear or other emotions, and then um, you know, we relate to it in certain ways that actually really can torment, really torment us. And so the power of mindfulness is that it, we're not carrying that extra, you know. We're not carrying that habitual attitude or relationship to our experience. So even one moment, say, of a mindfulness of, a, of an emotion like anger or fear or anxiety or grief or sadness, even one moment of mindfulness, maybe that's all we get, is a moment of freedom. It's actually, even though we may not feel it, it's a moment of non-fixing. Okay? It's a moment of not controlling it, not fixing it, not getting rid of it, not pushing it away. It's a moment of just meeting that experience. And the more moments we can cultivate around mindfulness of that, particularly when the quality of mindfulness is supported with that quality of lovingness, that loving uh, open-hearted, compassionate awareness that we've been talking about. And the, and the fruit of that is that it begins to facilitate a healing process. It begins to facilitate a healing process. We begin to touch the experience in a fundamentally different way, in a very open-hearted way. So we're not reinforcing that habitual relationship that we've developed over the course of time. So some of the unskillful, I'll talk about some, some other unskillful ways that we hold our emotions um, and kind of how we can disentangle you know, this, this relationship. 
this relationship, what I would say, is the relationship often towards painful emotions is unskillful. In other words, a lot of the suffering around painful emotions is not just that it's painful, but that it's how we're, how we're dealing with it, what we, how we cope with it, how we manage, what we, how we strategize around that particular emotion so that maybe we don't experience it. Okay? In one way, we often relate that creates trouble for us and how practice begins to free us up of that trouble moves us towards freedom is you know we shift from beginning to experience from being unconscious of a lot of emotions you know and we begin to become much more conscious of our emotional life you know we become much more sensitive to what our actual experience is and the fruit of that is just tremendous i mean first of all moving from the unconscious to the conscious is powerful what the buddha said was that the things that are unconscious, the things we're carrying around that we're unconscious of, we continue to practice. Okay, we continue to reinforce and practice them, and they become habits. As we begin to wake up, we begin to disentangle and let go of those habits. So it's much better to know than not know, even if what you know is kind of bad news. You know, in other words, even if what you know is kind of recognition that you've been carrying like a lot of anxiety around with you. Maybe a lot of it might have been kind of underground uh, and you know, kind of in the background and you know, generating other emotions that you didn't even know. Maybe you find that you're angry a lot. And yet, you know, when you start acknowledging and recognizing that anger is arising or aversion or impatience, you know, if we can recognize and acknowledge that, so there's one way of working from the unconscious, it's that rain right, the RA part of it, recognizing, allowing, or recognizing and acknowledging. You know, we begin to, to recognize and acknowledge what our experience is. Well, it, it, we're no longer practicing it, actually. We're being aware of it. And that's the, that's the fundamental transformation, is we're actually becoming aware that these experiences that we're having, are, it's a process uh, that we're going through that's changing. So we're not practicing those uns- the kind of unskillful, the, the, we're not practicing the things that are causing us pain or call, causing us suffering. We're healing that. Oftentimes we've accumulated, remember we, we accumulate, um, you know, we're enculturated, we're, we accumulate attitudes and um, habits that we're oftentimes not even remotely conscious of. And one way we often relate to emotions is we tell ourselves a story about you know, that particular experience or about who we are. A uh, good example of this, um, something I really find is very common and I've become, you know, really, I really watch this one closely. It's a, it's a real interesting one is that this sense that we will often tell ourselves we don't want to do something, right? I don't, I don't want to do something. It could be anything. I'll, I have a story about this. But we don't want to do anything. We don't want to do this. But the reality is, maybe, if we look close, maybe we do want to do it. But we don't want to experience the fear that is required to do it. And it's so much better to say, yeah, I do want to do it, but I'm just too afraid to do it right now. See, to me, when I started doing that, it was, 
I just, I just, just kind of discovered, you know, I kept saying something, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. And then I said, well, wait a second, is that true? Like, what's underneath that? And then I saw that what I didn't want to experience was the discomfort that was required to do it. And a good example of this was in the early 90s. Um, you know, I practiced for many years, you know, over a decade, and uh, then I decided I'd never gone to college. I decided to go to college. I got my BA, and then I got a master's, and, you know, I was kind of done by then. Uh, you know, it's pretty old to be doing that. Um, but, you know, I, so anyway. So in graduate school, I started slacking off, and I started doing a lot more practice. I was starting to travel more. I took some trips to Asia. So I'll share one of those later. Um, and then I was living in Cambridge, and I was living near a center, and I knew the teachers there very well. And, you know, they said, well, you know, it's getting really busy and crowded and all of that, and maybe you could help us out with teaching. And I remember my first reaction is, no, I don't want to do that. No way do I want to do that. You know? And, you know, I kind of looked at it, though, because I was really, I was at, at that mode, kind of inquiring on kind of like, what, what do I want to do with my life, but also just kind of questioning sometimes when I say no, like what's, that, what's behind that no, you know, and, and beginning to examine. That's a good thing to check that out, bring some more wisdom. And so what I saw when I began to look at it more closely uh, in a much more open-hearted way was, yeah, I, I guess it might be an okay thing to do, and, and you know, maybe I want to try it. You know, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, maybe I do want to do it. But then why was I saying no? And the reason I was saying no was because for most of my life, up really up to that point, I had a tremendous social phobia about speaking in public. You know, really strong one. Like, I spent like 40 years avoiding every possible situation where I had to speak in public. You know, it was a really strong fear. I remember once I was at a, in this, I'd gotten this scholarship to the school, and it was kind of a high-class school, and I didn't know what I was doing there. But um, I, you had to write all these papers, you know, these 20-page papers. Always 20 pages. I, I never really understood that. It's always 20 pages, 20 pages, 20 pages, 20 pages. Three, of course, three, of course, three, of course. You know, and, you know, it's tiring. Um, so... Um, I think this was my senior year. And so I was given an option for the final, which was to do a 10-minute presentation in class. It was a Shakespeare class or something. 10-minute presentation, or write a 20-page paper. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> what do you think, huh? And this is after meditating for you know, years, right? <laughs> I mean, it's embarrassing to share it. Um, but the reality was, is I took the 20-page paper, I hated every moment of it, and I really didn't like myself. You know, I really didn't like myself. So that was how strong it was. You know? And so when I realized, um, you know, I had gotten teaching, and I'll get to a story later, about some teaching that I had experienced when I was making my trips to Asia, you know, kind of slipping out of graduate school and going during the breaks. Um, that I began to really take up fear and, and really begin to work with that particular emotion and, and really begin genuinely to see that this was a limitation in my life, 
You know, I had many experiences of meditation, many peaceful moments, and it had given me a lot. But somehow I had managed to skirt, you know, this, this different kinds of fears that I had uh, accumulated through my life and never really brought loving attention to it, not, never really brought the practice to it in a full way. And so I had begun that process by now. And so I realized that really what I needed to do was, you know, start teaching. It was very modest. You know, classes were like six people or something. Uh, you know, it was like on a Tuesday afternoon and at noontime, and most people just fell asleep. So, it, you know, it was a nice nap for them, and, and it was a good experience for me. Um, <laughs> basically, didn't matter what I said. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I realized, but what I started doing was taking up the fear and really doing what I know already what to do, you know. Only this time, there was a much better understanding of the holistic nature of practice, is that you really have to kind of look at the places that you're limited and look at the kinds of choices and decisions we're making and understand what's driving that. You know, and a lot of times it's powerful emotions, but also it's powerful emotions that we've accumulated unskillful or a relationship that doesn't serve us, that provides a tremendous limitation in our life and limits us, you know, limits our potential. So one way of, of disentangling that is just getting to a point when you can recognize, and that was what one of the first steps I needed to take was just to recognize. Now, even that time when I was avoiding the paper, I wasn't really recognizing and just acknowledging and, and allowing that that fear to be there. I was just kind of trying to get out of the situation. You know, it was just a situation that I knew I needed to get out of that I wasn't making me happy, and uh, I needed to avoid it. So I was really engaged in more in avoiding than recognizing, acknowledging, and allowing that experience to be there. So to me, that is such an important step to take um, in this kind of disentangling of our unwholesome or unskillful ways of relating to our emotions. What I mean by unwholesome and unskillful is a relationship that generates suffering for us. In other words, there's ways that we can respond to our fears and our anger and our grief and our sadness in ways that doesn't generate suffering, in fact, can heal us. <laughs> I had a quote, but I didn't bring it down. Let's see. No, I didn't. Okay. We go without it. So... I think sometimes we avoid things because of that expectation. You know, this like we just don't think we should be still experiencing it, so we don't. There's a part of our mind that just builds up a defense around it. You know, it doesn't want to acknowledge that we're, you know, in that much trouble or that we're, you know, that we're still subject to this stuff. You know, that that you know, we might have done 20 years of therapy and 10 years of meditation, and still, you know, we're experiencing these really painful memories of painful emotions, or we still feel tight, contracted, and, and sometimes really unconscious uh, some of the time. And, it, it's, and that's where, to me, the, the metta, the, the loving-kindness aspect of mindfulness is so important because, um, you know, it takes courage, and it takes a, an attitude that um, is friendlier, friendlier towards the inquiry that we're going on. It's a very deep inquiry. And when, we're, when the mindfulness is being driven by judging, 
by fixing, by getting rid of, or improving, or getting better at, or success, or failure. There's an edge to it. The metta softens the mindfulness, allows it to go much more deeper. You know, it allows us to kind of move through the resistance, to meet the resistance and not reinforce it. talk might go slightly over, uh, not too over, but a little bit. So what I would say is kind of like what have we been doing, you know, what have we been doing here and how does that, um, you know, like, you know, some of this stuff might sound good, how does it happen, yeah, as Sarah was pointing out, you know, the how. Um, so. Realistically, when we're caught, caught in painful emotions, the emphasis is on caught. When we're caught in painful or we're feeling overwhelmed, one skillful way of working with that emotion is taking up a calming practice you know, to balance the mind. You know, in other words, we recognize, we acknowledge that we're feeling all this fear, anxiety, worry. We might be experiencing a lot of anxiety about going home. So we recognize we've been practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness, the recognition you know, that that's what our experience is, but yet it's still just obsessive and strong and it's powerful and, it's, and we can feel the shift when we get caught in it from someplace that's moderately calm or moderately relaxed to a place where there's a lot of tension and, and, it, and a lot of pain in some ways. It can be painful. So to, to, to have the capacity to actually calm the mind in that moment is so empowering. It brings a lot of faith when we can tap into that capacity to develop calm when we're facing provocative conditions, whether they're provocative conditions externally or provocative conditions internally with, with painful emotions or difficult emotions or challenging emotions. So there are a couple of practices that I have found extremely useful in that. One calming practice is the touch points. You know, I, you know, obviously, I kind of you know, emphasize that a lot, introduce it into the method. And the reason I do that is because I feel like it's extremely valuable for everyday life. You know, not just in the cushion, but on everyday life. Because what it can do is it can, what is, what, say you're walking down the street and you're feeling anxious. And say for some reason you remembered, oh, contact at the bottoms of the feet. You felt your touch points, right? Are you in the past, present, or future? Present, right? At least that part of the present moment, right? That's what's so powerful about working with touch point. And it's so easy to do. I've seen it tens of thousands of times over the course of my practicing with touch points. Is that when I can remember to come back to a touch point, because I've been practicing it so much, it actually brings more balance to my mind. And then I can deal with whatever's happening. You know, I, I've empowered myself to relate to the situation that I'm in, even if it's just like simple feeling of really being impatient with a situation and then just feeling contact like if you're in a store and you're trying to get out in a hurry and you're in line and just feeling like the, the bottoms of the feet for even just a few seconds. I've seen this countless times where you, you're standing in line, you know, you feel like, well, I've got to get to someplace by 1230 and this person's paying with coins and dollars and 
it's the six, you know, six articles or whatever they call it, line, and she's got like 20 or he's got 30. And, you know, you get really impatient and annoyed. You notice that energy? You know, if we carry that energy into the, with the person who's working as the cashier, how does that feel? Right? How does it feel for them and how does it feel for you? Not good. Go to a touch point, feel the bottoms of your feet, even for three or four seconds. Nobody needs to know. <laughs> Nobody needs to know. You don't have to tell them anything. You've got your eyes open. You're just uh, another customer in a long line. Okay? But the difference is incredible. That's all I can tell you. It changes the dynamic. And believe me, people like to be treated kindly. And it opens up that possibility to do that, and it actually does do it. So something that simple can be incredibly useful. It interrupts the momentum of where we are. It interrupts the momentum of the suffering that we're caught in. And the impatience, of course, is the expectation, right? That things should be moving faster. There's the impatience. There's the suffering. You see the impatience, and one skillful way is to calm the mind. Another practice I've worked with is, you know, I don't, I don't practice it like Sarah. And that's why Sarah's teaching it, and I'm along for the ride. Um, but I do practice metta in my daily life and in my sitting practice a little bit. And oftentimes when I do it is at the end of a sitting. And I use the phrase, and I actually use it sometimes in my daily life when I feel like a strong emotion coming. Like particularly something like that's agitating. Um, I'll do may I be peaceful. Okay, that's the phrase I choose. I used to say may I be at ease. And then at a certain point it started feeling kind of mechanical. And I switched to may I be peaceful. And I chose a phrase that I can resonate with. You know, for me, like, may I be happy wasn't working. May I be peaceful felt like, yeah, that's what I need right now. You know, it's made. So I do it at the end of a sitting. And it, it's, it really does work. I mean, you know, it's not a new age practice. It really actually it genuinely works. And it really facilitates a change in consciousness to a place where, you know, when I come out of a sitting after I've done May I Be Peaceful, I might be, like, before I start doing that, I might be thinking, what well, am I going to have for breakfast? Da, 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 da. I'm going off into the future. What do I have to do today? And I say, oh, yeah, may I be peaceful. I'll come up, and, and just the quality of mind is so much more connected and relaxed, and I feel more powerful. You know, I feel more like, ah, yeah, you know, practice. You know, it works, um, and it inspires me. Um, so that's another practice is to find one phrase that you can call on, whether it's in your formal practice or, or in your daily life, just one, one uh, phrase even or a couple of phrases that you can call on. And you can do it anywhere. You can do it driving. You can send it to the people who are sharing the road with you. It probably won't improve their driving skills, but uh, it might calm your mind. It just might. So... Um, Another antidote that the Buddha spoke about in terms of uh, working with our aversions and our judgments and our, you know, our suffering, the, the things that we were, were um, things that we picked up along the way that, that cause us problems, um, is one antidote to aversion, classic antidote, was noble friendship. Noble friendship. And that can mean a lot of different things. 
You know, that can mean a lot of things. It could be a teacher, or it could be a friend who's a practitioner. But basically what it means, I think, how I interpret noble friendship as an antidote, is that it's somebody that you can share something with, something that you're going through, an issue or whatever it might be. But you're sharing with somebody that can hold that experience with more wisdom and compassion than you are in that moment. So that takes a certain level of wisdom to know who to share it with. Uh, because I've shared it with folks who have less wisdom and less compassion, and it really doesn't really, it's not really much of an antidote. Uh, you, know? Uh, you know, it just kind of reinforces the train that you're already on, uh, maybe digs you a little deeper. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it really helps a lot to open, the, open that field of sharing uh, with guided by wisdom because we're often so identified with the experience, we're not really able to necessarily hold it with, um, some, with enough clarity or especially enough compassion. Often we lose perspective, right, when we get caught up in very powerful emotions. So one inquiry practice, remember I said four foundations of mindfulness, first foundation is the body, second is feelings, third is emotion, states of mind, fourth is impermanence, change, laws of experience. Um, second foundation is the painful, is painful, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral. One thing that's very helpful is when you are caught up, when we are caught up in a strong emotion, is to recognize the feeling quality. Is it a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Like we could be daydreaming, right? Oftentimes that daydreaming is neutral, right? There's just thoughts coming and going but then we might start worrying about something. So the, the feeling quality is contracted and painful, right? Worry is not an expansive, open-hearted state of mind. It's a contracted, tight mind, right? Um, so seeing that this is a painful experience is extremely helpful to recognize that second foundation quality to that state of mind. And once we recognize that it's if it's a painful state, once we recognize, recognize and accept that we're in a painful state, you know, this just doesn't feel good, it's really uncomfortable, it's painful, then asking and inquiring, inquiry, uh, can I hold this pain with compassion? It's just like, can I make room? Or can I make space for this experience? When we notice, when we're in a state of pain, whether it's physical, uh-uh-uh, or emotional, right? Can I hold this with compassion? And it's, an, it's a question. It's not I have to be compassionate towards myself about this emotion. I have to be compassionate about this injury or whatever. It's can I be? You know, it's an open-hearted question. Just the question itself is establishing a fundamentally different relationship with that experience. It's changing a habit, the habit of aversion and judgment, the habit of identifying with it. So can I, you know, can I hold this being with? And again, you might there might be a no. Once in a while, you might find a little bit more room, a little bit more softening. So can I make can I hold this pain with compassion? And I'll just finish up uh, talking a little bit more about uh, how we identify. Just take five minutes. Go. Over. A very compelling and deep 
deeply conditioned way of relating to this body and the mind and strong emotions is that we claim these experiences as me or mine, right? Me or mine. You know, we define ourselves when we're in that experience of uh, anger or anxiety or worry or fear. You know, we really take it as that, that's mine, that's me. And there's a strong claiming of that experience as me or mine. And in, in, in many ways, that's, it's, a, it's, it's not only a disconnect from the process nature of that experience, but it's extremely limiting when we identify or define ourselves by passing and changing emotions, no matter how powerful they are. I met with someone who was one of my classes back in Cambridge. It was a fear class. And a um, person came in. I knew him quite well. And he came in, you know, we, he was doing the fear class, and he came in and he said, you know, um, well, first of all, one of the most common things that I would experience when I was teaching this was people would get discouraged initially because they started seeing how often they were afraid. And actually they came in thinking, well, fear is kind of an issue, but by the second or third week they saw, wow, <laughs> it really is an issue. And they look at me, you know, and they think, well, you know, thanks. Um, but I would like smile and say, yeah, that, well, good. Not good that you have all that fear, but good that you're seeing it, because that's the only way we're going to move through it, right? Okay. So this person would come in and they'd say, you know, I'm, I'm really a super anxious person. You know, I'm a super anxious person. And I said, no, you're not. And he said, yeah, no, I, you don't know me well enough. I did know him pretty well. He said, yeah, I, I, like I'm really an anxious person. I said, no, you're not. Third time. You know, started getting annoyed at me, and I don't blame him. Uh, so he was getting annoyed with me and all that, and I, f- I realized I, I'd used that one up. I needed to take another tack, and I was going to anyway. Um, so I said, yeah, I, I really know that you are suffering, and I do really hear the fact that anxiety is a, a big, you know, painful force in your life, and it's limiting you in significant ways. So I, I, I know that. But don't claim it. In other words, you're more than that. You're more than that. You know, anxiety is just a state that's been conditioned, you know, maybe like for a long time. And it, it, it's not these, nothing that we encounter we should claim as who you are. Don't, def- don't define ourselves by these passing, changing experiences because it fixes us. It, it creates a solidity. And then there's a lack of openness. You know, there's a lack of openness. And then we're coming from this place of, I'm an anxious person. You know, rather than saying, yeah, I'm dealing with anxiety, but like, how can I work with that? You know, in other words, it becomes unworkable once we land there. You know, and oftentimes what happens is we slide into resignation. You know, if I'm an anxious person, that's the kind of person I am. Instead of saying, yeah, this is anxiety, how can I work with this in a, in a more wise or wholesome or loving or compassionate or in a more skillful way? And there are ways to do that within this particular framework that we're talking about. And that's a very different approach to life than going and saying, I'm this, I'm that. not seeing the changing nature of what we're going through. Think of how many changes we've gone through on this retreat. 
you know, how many countless experiences and thoughts and feelings and reactions and sensations and tastes and sights and sounds. You know, just the unfolding of a day. You know, we, we kind of joke about sometimes, like, we've only been here three days. <laughs> it's amazing, really. You know, just there's such a range of experiences that we go through. Um, and that's because we're paying attention. And we're noticing the changing nature of our experience. And where that takes us, we need to find out for ourselves. But one place, that one quality of mind and one power that comes out of that is greater equanimity, a greater capacity to work with change, to not find change so threatening. We develop a kind of resilience. And we need that. You know? to live on this planet. We need resilience. Okay. All right, so I'm done. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.